Good evening. This is Cinema 60. On tonight's episode of Cinema 60, Bart and Jenna discuss the Shaw Brothers and the rise of Hong Kong cinema in the 60s. So, Jenna, I hear you're a big fan of kung fu movies. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say that I am not. A, I'm not. How dare you put me in this spot? You don't like them. It's okay. I don't know much about them either, which is why I thought this was a perfect learning opportunity for both of us to see what was happening in the 60s in Hong Kong before the whole international chop sake explosion in the 70s and wanted to focus specifically on Shaw Brothers because they pretty much were the driving force, especially in the 60s, for these Hong Kong martial arts movies. And there are a few classics that they did that I just knew I had to see sooner or later, so I figured this was an opportunity to see them, like Come Drink With Me and One-Armed Swordsman. So I uh, put it to you, hey, how about we both get outside of our comfort zones and do some Shaw Brothers movies? And you said, okay. We try our best, especially after the last <laughs> couple episodes where it's just like pure, this is exactly what we wanted to talk about. And if you let us talk about Antonioni for another five hours, well, I'm sure that both of us would happily go for that. But yeah, let's get outside of our comfort zone. I'll say I don't hate martial arts movies at all. I don't hate martial arts. I think martial arts is super cool. That there is a pacing and a something about these, which I'm going to try and understand. So if you're also bored by these things, I in general will say that I'm very bored by action films. Mm -hmm. Those are like the most boring genre of films to me. We have that in common. But of course, as I say that, I also have a big asterisk because there's plenty of action movies where I'm like, this was super kick-ass and I loved it. So it is what it is. It's not my favorite thing, but this was great actually to go back and see these things and because I now feel like I understand so much of where culture has (laughs) gone up and above. There was this great tweet that was going around on the Twitter. It was basically, what was more influential, French New Wave or Shaw Brothers to modern cinema? And it was just one of those like, uh, (laughs) because it's definitely Shaw Brothers, easily. I mean, look at like all of Marvel movies and then never mind that right now Hollywood is catering very specifically to Chinese audiences. And so we're only being pushed further and further toward action first story later kind of stuff. Yeah. So it was interesting to go back and see these things and and sort of see this perfectly distilled versions of things that are currently very trendy and that we're seeing all the time in mainstream movies. I find the storytelling in action movies hard to connect to. But in the best action movies, there are always several sequences where the kinetic energy totally sucks me in. I mean, these martial arts movies, and I don't watch many of them beginning to end, but I'll love watching you know, a video of somebody who's compiled Jackie Chan's best stunts and you know, best moments from martial arts movies because this stuff at its best is dance. It's, I mean, it's, it's all choreographed very carefully. So in essence, it's just dance with loads of arterial spray. So I can enjoy these things on that level a bit. But there is a simplicity to the storytelling that, you know, makes them not very challenging. 
there's not much to think about with these movies when you're watching them, but it's not hard to kind of put yourself in the place of, I am an audience member looking to be entertained, and these movies are entertaining me. Can I say the the thing about dance? I think that's exactly why I don't connect to these movies. <laughs> because, and this is a, purely a character flaw on my part, and I apologize to the world, but I, I'm not a big... Like, like specifically ballet, I don't particularly get. And I think that this even ties into, I like dance a lot. Like it depends, <laughs> really depends. But with all it is is dance, like when all I'm there is just like sitting there watching a dance performance, I have a really hard time connecting to those unless they get just super strange and like interesting. And then it just becomes like this sort of what, like what am I watching? But when it comes to like ballet and stuff, I don't know what I'm looking at. And this I think ties into the fact that I don't understand sports at all. <laughs> Like, at all, it does not impress me. It's just a ball going through a hoop. Like, fine, you know? And I understand the fact that I could never do that, but also I have just no interest or jealousy that I can never do that, like, <laughs> to me. But then again, I'm just being a jerk because anything can be distilled down to, it's just a ball and a hoop. Like, you know, that's what what's a movie. I mean, like, geez, it's just like a bunch of people playing pretend, as, as people like to angrily point out. But I, I just don't connect to that stuff. And I think that it all ties in to this because if the point is that the thrill is meant to be based on someone's physical performance, it takes like a lot. Like that's when I have to see like the person jumping off a cliff and being exploded through a cannon kind of stuff. That's when I'm like, oh crap. Which of course Shaw Brothers later 100% bought into. And that's when I can get more into <laughs> watching these movies where it's like, oh shit, that guy definitely died while this happened. But there's a total disconnect for me. And I think that's part of it. But I want to change. I want to become a better person. <laughs> I want to learn uh, the vocabulary or I don't know. I want to learn all the cues that are involved in appreciating these things because everyone else seems to love it. And I'm, I'm clearly missing something. I know Carlo, my buddy on back row, is a huge, massive fan of this stuff. And he's definitely suggested things to me that I never would have picked up on my own that were really weird and interesting and fun. So... Maybe one day. Well, I get a lot of pure pleasure out of watching Bodies in Motion. And I think these movies are at their best when there's not a lot of heavy editing. When you get a distant shot where you get to see that the performers are actually doing this choreography themselves. And ballet is not necessarily my favorite just because it's like opera. It seems a little show-offy and I don't understand the language of it necessarily. And ballet can be a little dull sometimes for me, but anything this kinetic and pure gives me a thrill, you know, on a very basic level. And I guess you're just probably missing that gene. Maybe I might be. Well, the Shaw brothers, you know, bunch of brothers from Shanghai who had been in the movie business for a while. I'll say a few of their names, some of the most important of the Shaw brothers. I think at a certain point, they're up to five Shaw brothers working in this company, trying to make them reach the top. But Run Me, Run Jay, Run Day, and Run Run seem to be the four most important Shaw brothers. And uh, based in Shanghai, and then they moved to Singapore, and eventually saw an opening in Hong Kong to sort of make their mark in the cinema world. And 
there was really only one other company there, Cathay, who was making mainstream cinema, the only other real kind of movie studio in Hong Kong. And the Shaw brothers kind of came in and said, okay, we're going to define Hong Kong cinema here. We're going to be the guys. We're going to make our mark on the world. So this is the late 50s that they really started ramping up their film production. And in the early 60s, they actually opened a full-size studio called Movie Town. You know, it was just a giant studio where they could have, you know, many, many productions being shot at once there. And I love Movie Town. We actually started with one movie, uh, The Enchanting Shadow, from 1960, before the Shaw Brothers had really become the Shaw Brothers that we know and love today. I mean, anybody who's seen a Shaw Brothers movie knows the famous shield and fanfare that comes on at the beginning, and it says, In Shaw Scope. Their idea for taking over the world was to just have these really lavish sets and spend a lot of money on costumes and you know, this widescreen process. Always, you know, full color. The colors are beautiful in, in all of these Shaw Brothers movies. So, you know, they said, we'll spend lots of money on these movies and we'll definitely draw an international audience. But, you know, at first they tried a whole range of genres. As we'll see, they started with the Huangmei Opera, which was a popular folk genre in China. So they put a lot of these Huangmei operas on screen. It really wasn't until the mid-60s, actually 1965 specifically, where the Shaw Brothers sort of publicized, time for a new era in Shaw Brothers movie making. We're going to start making serious action movies now and they uh, decided to really ramp up their production of wuxia films which are you know these sort of fantasy sword play martial arts movies based on a literary genre that began in the early 20th century and and you know from the silent days on there were movie adaptations of these wuxia w-u-x-i-a that seemed to translate well to the screen, but the Shaw brothers said, okay, we're going to do it right. We're going to spend a lot of money, and we're going to make the ultimate wuxia films, and, and we're going to draw an international audience here. They were making a lot of money in Hong Kong with their films, and they are starting to, you know, throughout Asia, they, they had a whole sort of like the Italian studio system where there was no direct sound. Everything was dubbed after the fact, so it made it easy to you know, release things in different languages. And their movies were getting pretty big in, in a lot of Asia. They'd had some of their films make international film festivals. I actually think The Enchanting Shadow was one that played Khan and was Hong Kong's entry for the best foreign film in the Academy Awards that year. Um, so they had this idea that they could move beyond Asia and, and really take over the world. And uh, they decided these, these wuxia fantasy swordplay films would be the way that they do it. But before we get into the genre that the Shaw brothers are famous for, we're going to take a look at a couple of films they did before the whole wuxia craze took off. Our first film is The Enchanting Shadow from 1960. directed by Lee Han Xiam, which also, by the way, I apologize to anyone <laughs> who actually can speak uh, any Chinese because we're definitely going to butcher some pronunciations, but we're trying our best. So many of these names are translated in different ways, depending on what source you're looking at. And a lot of these 
people that we're talking about, they have their Chinese names and then they adopted English names too, so they're referred to by different names. So we're going to do our best, but names will undoubtedly be a real issue for us this episode. And we, we apologize. But yeah, in Enchanting Shadow, this one's interesting because it's essentially just a classic Chinese tale, classic ghost story. It's based on a story that was written in the 17th century in a collection that was called Strange Tales from a Chinese Studio by Pu Song Ling. And as you said, it was submitted to Cannes. I don't know that I don't think it won anything. But yeah, this is pretty typical of what you would just sort of expect coming out of China, I suppose. Out of Hong Kong, though, it's kind of interesting because in the 60s, Hong Kong was really changing. And I think that you'll see as we're going through these movies, this big push from this more traditional and more sedate filmmaking to then sort of a way more radical and, and weird and very Western and Japanese influenced kind of cinema. Hong Kong in this time, there was a ton of refugees coming from mainland China. And I think that part of what the Shaw brothers were doing at this point was catering, in fact, to a lot of that. And so this one is, I, I, I enjoyed The Enchanting Shadow. And part of it is just because it felt like a Hammer film meets Star Trek meets like some sort of Japanese ghost movie. It was pretty straightforward and silly. And actually, this was remade in 1987 into a Chinese ghost story, which was incredibly popular, a Hong Kong movie. So FYI, that's what this is. So, yeah, the plot is you have this guy, Ning, who's played by Lei Zhao. And Ning is like a young tax collector, scholar sort of guy. And he is very pure of heart. So he comes to town and he wants to stay at this local temple and nobody wants to take him there because they all say it's haunted. He laughs that off and finally gets a guy to, to bring him all the way up there. And the place looks pretty haunted. <laughs> and he ends up meeting this swordsman, Yan, who's sort of a hermit and is played by Chi Ching Yang. Who is in every single one of these movies that we yes. watched. <laughs> or I think he's not in one of them, but he's the one guy who, I mean, you see a lot of the same faces in all these Shaw Brothers movies, but this is the one guy who just jumps out of, of every one of these movies. And he plays a major role in, in all of them, in five of the six that we watched. And he sort of laughs off, too. He, he sort of is just like, well, if you're going to stay here, here's a room, you know, but people die here, so, <laughs> so enjoy. And basically that first night, Ning wakes up to find, or he stumbles into this beautiful garden that's just sort of around the corner from where he's staying. And he sees this all of these beautiful women singing. She's creating a poem, this one woman specifically, who is played by Betty Loti, who was like a big star too right mm-hmm and died under mysterious circumstances at a fairly young age i think oh, that's yeah. sad so she's sitting there she's writing a poem and there is a lot of singing and you can tell that this was based on a huang mei opera specifically because even though they're not singing the the words there's a ton of singing in this and there's a ton of lyrical poetry that i don't think translates very well <laughs> <laughs> We also might not have had a particularly good translation. I'll bet a translator with a more poetic spirit might have done a better job. Huang Mei operas, by the way, are, are this traditional Chinese operas that had a huge revival in the 50s and then broke into Hong Kong as being super popular around, around this time in the late 50s to the 60s. And again, that was probably in part to that massive immigration that was happening to Hong Kong. So there was this built-in audience that you know enjoyed this kind of stuff anyhow. 
so anyhow, you know, Ning, he, he sees this beautiful woman. They have a, a brief flirtation and, and then he runs away. And as it goes, eventually you sort of learn that this ghost who is named Nia, she's dead. She's a ghost. I just said she was a ghost, but he doesn't he doesn't realize that. Everyone else kind of realizes it. You as the audience are kind of like, yeah, she looks kind of ghostly. So he sort of finds out that, you know, this haunting spirit is this like beautiful woman who's very sweet and kind. And then when other people come to stay, they end up dying. And so then the mystery sort of becomes, well, why are, why are some people dying? And, and is this woman actually uh, alive or not? He eventually finds out. It's like a great typical ghost story of, you know, like, uh, oh, I saw her walk into the store and leave this poem. We've had that poem in here for 10 years kind of thing. Those are the best moments in the movie for me. I love that stuff. Yeah. So what did you think about this movie? I had a good time watching it. I mean, it is, it's pretty simple and very low key, but it's so Chinese. I don't know. It just felt like a peek into Chinese culture and, and traditional folk tale. And I really like the, uh, the friendship between Ning and Yan. They're these two pure hearted men who, you know, even when they finally decide to admit to each other that, yeah, I didn't want to say anything, but yeah, there are ghosts here. They both, feel like because they're so pure of heart and not tempted by this ghostly seductress that they're safe in this place, that they're not going to be killed like every other visitor to this temple who's been seduced by Nye at the behest of her granny who uh, just wants to kill people. Right. That's the thing is that there is an evil spirit and it's this Lao Lao. Nye had died at this site and they couldn't properly bury her at her ancestral home that she's now trapped by other spirits who are angry and and they send her to seduce the men and then they come and they kill everyone and it's very hammer it's this granny is has this like you know she's she's either a beautiful older woman or she is this rubber hideous face of a a ghoul then like sucks the life out of them through the bottom of their feet or something like they all have these Mm -hmm. big dracula cuts on the bottom of their feet i love Anne in the end Ning says, like, well, well, you knew that this happened? Like, why didn't you just kill her? And he's like, well, I'm a Buddhist, and I I believe that we should live and let live uh, for ghosts and demons alike. And you're like, (laughs) ah. But eventually, Yan decides that for the good of humanity, he better do something about these ghosts and perform his martial arts on Granny. Well, at one point, his sword sends an electrical charge through her without him having to do anything. But later on, at the, you know, at the climax of the movie where there's a big showdown in the forest, which I think is another great ghostly moment when Ning is bringing the bones of Nye to her hometown to bury them and he stops in this inn and he goes to set down the bag of bones and then the hut disappears and he's in the forest and Granny launches her attack. There's some really creepy ghostly moments in this that I definitely enjoyed. But then Yan comes along and, and helps Ning out, decides that, yeah, it's time to... Put the smack down on Granny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way that they sort of set up that you know someone's haunted or that they're dead or a spirit is just through colored lights. It's just gels. Which is great. Which is super great, and it really makes me, reminds me of Star Trek. Never mind <laughs> that the soundtrack of this is totally theremin-heavy and sounds mm-hmm. fantastic and definitely like Star Trek, so that was pretty fantastic. Yeah, it's supposed to be like a, a ghostly music, you know, like a bode saw sort of thing, but it's clearly electronically produced, so it seems slightly out of place. There's also this whole, like, basically, and why, why Yan ends up killing her is because she oversteps her boundaries because she gets so frustrated that Ning won't fall for the tricks, that she says, screw it, I'm just going to kill this guy anyhow. 
And that's when Yan draws the line. But it was interesting to see what was considered pure of heart. Because basically everyone who is unpure of heart and ends up getting murdered are people that are just sort of men that will give into temptation or money grubbing or something like that. Whereas Ning, who, I mean, he's like a tax collector, which isn't really (laughs) my definition of pure at heart. But he talks to you a lot about like, well, there's a lot of invasions in the empire and you know, you would really do a, do good with your sword and, and you should join up the cause. So it's very much this pro-government. It's like a sort of interesting definition of what pure at heart means. You know, like he's very chaste. And when Nia, you know, they both bond over poetry and then he reaches for her brush and she reaches at the same time and they both touch hands and then turn away. And even when she's totally throwing herself on him, he gets very upset and uptight about it. So, you know, it's kind of very stodgy kind of definition of pure at heart for sure. But Ning's a good guy. I don't know. I'm not, not trying to be down on Ning. He's fine. Yeah, I mean, all the business owners who are you know, happily paying their taxes to him when he visits town, like, they don't, they don't seem to hold a grudge against him. It's pro-government in that way, too. It's like, yeah, you got to pay your taxes. Nothing wrong with that. No big deal. It's just something you got to do. So, yeah, this was super traditional. And as you said, it's just very Chinese. It's just... <laughs> It's kind of what I was expecting all of these to be in some way or another, which they actually radically end up not being. But for the next movie that we chose, which is The Mermaid. which was in 1965. This one is even goes further into these Huang Mei opera films. And it's all the better for it. You chose this one. This is directed by Cao Li. And I have to say just real quick that the title of this movie is Yu Mei Ren, which literally translates to fish beauty, <laughs> which I like better than The Mermaid. In the movie itself, she's referred to as the carp spirit which makes more sense. I think there's this the story in this movie bears a superficial resemblance to Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid, so I think that's probably why The Mermaid was chosen as the title. But there's some major differences in there. But yeah, let's let's call her the carp spirit, not the mermaid. She's a fish beauty. <laughs> and she is a fish beauty. So the thing, number one, before we even get into I mean, that's basically the plot, as you just said, that another scholar comes in and, and he's set to be married to a woman that is called Peony. And she is completely uninterested in marrying him. And he ends up, the family is, they're very disappointed with him as, as far as being not who they thought he was. He's not like a, a worldly scholar. He's still learning and he's poor and all of this. Well, his father was important, but he died. So when his father died, he didn't have enough money to achieve a high office. That's why his godfather, I guess, the prime minister, who uh, is the father of the girl peony that he's been promised to, also played by Yang Chicheng, the older gentleman who's in every one of these movies. Yeah, so the prime minister allows Zheng Zhan to stay at his palace because he had a good relationship with his father. And because, uh, you know, if he continues to pursue his studies there, he may be able to rise in ranks and become a high-ranking official and then be more worthy of his daughter, Peony. 
Did you mention who Zhang Zhan was played by yet? The first thing that you're going to notice about this is that the main male character is a woman. And it's clearly, it's one of those things where I I kept waiting for this to be revealed that it was a woman. (laughs) But no, eventually you realize like, oh, this must be just a traditional opera. And this, this, most of this movie is sung. This is very much so an opera and very much in the tradition of Huang Mei operas. And yeah, it's played by this actress, Ivy Ling Po, who has kind of an interesting backstory because she apparently she had this really awful childhood where she was like sold into a family and worked as a maid and then later was pushed into movies because it was like another way for the family to make money from what I can tell. And then basically that she had got her start dubbing in for other operas and got noticed by the Shaw brothers who then cast her in this movie, The Love Return. This was like a hugely popular Huang Mei opera film, which we couldn't get. Right. So maybe one day in the future we can find it. I wanted so badly to put this on the list of movies for us to watch just because it's it's one of the most notable and probably the most popular early 60s movie that the Shaw Brothers put out. But you can't get it. You can't see it. Yeah, that was basically this opera film. It's about a girl who pretends to be a boy to enter an all boys school and then falls in love with one of her friends. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of angst. It's one of these movies where a spoiler for this movie, no one can see or get like everyone dies and then they live happily in the afterlife <laughs> kind of romance. Um, and yeah, as you said, this was a huge, massive hit for them. And It doesn't totally surprise me as someone who is a fan. I mean, it's totally different country, but like, you know, all these influences, especially of tales and things that get imported and and, uh, exported in and around Asia, totally doesn't surprise me because this is like basically the plot of most mangas and and anime. (laughs) So, yeah, it sounds great. And it was apparently a huge hit with women specifically. And this launched Ivy Ling Po to stardom but only playing men's roles and other like cross gender variation roles. Like she starred as Mulan, which was about as close as she got to playing a woman again, playing a man. And then it was just one of these things where she was a huge star when she was in men's roles, which is weird because she's sort of traditionally feminine and delicate looking. She doesn't confuse you for any moment as far as what your expectations of a man and woman look like, especially in film it's kind of an interesting thing and she has a high voice and all these sort of traditionally feminine things so kind of interesting apparently she wasn't thrilled about (laughs) being typecast and tried to break out of it and I think she did eventually but in the 60s it was all about her and men's roles so here she is in this Huang Mei opera yeah I don't know this was this whole thing is strange it's basically like and, and this maybe was this was my favorite of all the movies that we watched because it's so strange because it's basically that as the scholar is pining away to, to be married and, and doesn't realize that everyone in this family has no interest in him and Peony definitely won't marry him. He sort of stands on the balcony in their house and he talks to himself and recites poetry and in the pond below him, a carp spirit falls in love with him. <laughs> and so the carp spirit then goes back to all of her friends in the pond which by the way was amazing because it's basically like they'll show you an actual fish and then, like, you know, the screen's like, and it's like a person dressed in, like, the scale armor, and they, you know, stand up. Or, like, a turtle or something, and, like, the turtle, like, turns around, and it's a guy wearing, like, an outfit. The transformations are great. Brilliant. There are actually some really great special effects in this movie. Oh, yeah. Like, when the carp spirit is, you know, floating above the water to get to 
the scholar's balcony or when the goddess of mercy comes down in her cloud with her servants. And... Yeah, they're like pulling them through the water on dry ice and like something that's just below the surface. So they look like they're floating on water. It's, it's awesome, actually. <laughs> And there's a lot of that sort of traditional Chinese uh, opera posing. And this one isn't trying at all not to look like an opera. In fact, it's giving you the best of opera and the best of film at the same time by letting them do these special effects that you can't do on stage or at the time you couldn't do on stage. And still, you know, keeping with the fact that this is, whole thing is magical realism. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I loved it. It's super strange, especially just that it's, it's sort of very gay but it's definitely not meant to be. <laughs> and it's there's just a lot of really good comedy in it because when the fish spirits take human form, they take the form of other people who actually exist. So the carp spirit takes the form of Peony so that uh, the scholar will fall in love with her. But then, of course, the scholar thinks that she actually is Peony. And then when the real Peony shows up, the scholar thinks, oh, Peony does love me. Oh, no, she doesn't. And then you get these scenes where the actual Peony and then the carp spirit, who looks like Peony, are together in the same room. And they're both played by the same actress, who's Lee Ching. Who actually is gets the best stuff to do in this movie. She's really impressive. She's a whole lot of fun. She's great. And I don't think she was necessarily a huge Hong Kong star. I mean, I think she had a few big roles, but never got huge. But she's great in this. When both Peonies are singing the same lines of dialogue at the same time and there's just uh, you know a lot of identity confusion it's really entertaining and then the best thing is that to solve this problem they say we're going to go to the judge that has the anti-evil sword (laughs) and so then the carp spirit hears this and she rushes back to her pond and she says oh no they're going to find me out because the judge has an anti-evil sword and so all of her little friends all of the fishes and the animals in the lake come together and they take on the form of the judge and all his ministers yeah by the time everyone comes to court the next day there's two different sets of judges and ministers uh both sitting on either side and everyone's like oh my god <laughs> with the two peonies who both uh, you know won't admit who's real and who isn't so that was actually, it was totally a lot of fun and it was super weird. And then there was this big battle in the end where essentially the judge, after no one can figure out who the real judge is, he calls for this exorcism, which sends all of the spirits, like the divine spirits to come and attack the carp spirit and all of her friends to put everyone back in their place. And so there is this big martial arts battle. <laughs> underwater. <laughs> underwater. <laughs> And it's so good. And there's all of these weird, they have all these little children playing like little turtles. It's so strange and violent. <laughs> yeah. And then like, as they're being beat, then as you said, the goddess of mercy comes down and she basically says, look, I'll give you a chance, but you either got to give all of this crap up with the guy that you're in love with and come back and study under me for another 500 years. And then you'll have eternal enlightenment. She'll ascend to heaven and become a goddess, I guess. Yeah. It's like, or you give up three and a half scales and then you become immortal and you have nothing and you can live with this guy. Enjoy. And of course, sadly, the carp spirit chooses love over eternal, you know, enlightenment and goddesshood, which sucks because they imply that she spent the last thousand years studying to be a goddess. So kind of a bummer. But she also said it was kind of boring. It was lonely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is after the Goddess of Mercy has been impressed by the scholar and the carp spirit's willingness to sacrifice their own lives for the other so that the other might go on. It's a classic love story. 
I also have to say, you got to hand it to the scholar who, when he finds out that he's actually in love with the carp spirit and not the real peony, his reaction is like, well, like love's hard to find. So I don't, I don't mind. <laughs> like you can be a fish. It's cool. Yeah. I mean, Tom Hanks and Splash really breaks down about it when he finds out he's in love with a fish, but he finally gets over <laughs> it. But the scholar in this movie is totally okay with it. Nobody's perfect. So great movie. This one definitely is worth a watch, I think, as far as going into 60s movies. It's definitely really traditional, but it's so silly and fun and cute that it's totally worth it. And also importantly, we're in prime Shaw Brothers era now. You've got the shield and fanfare at the beginning. It's in Shaw scope. Enchanting Shadow is just in your standard Academy ratio, but this is widescreen and beautiful sets and colors. and, And it also ends with a traditional another Shaw production. It says at the end of every Shaw Brothers movie. <laughs> yeah, the Shaw Brothers are, are definitely in their prime at this point, ready to take over the world. The, and this also, like, now that we're getting into the mid-60s, and the next movie, which I'll let Bart introduce, because I think he has more information than I do, but I'll, I'll give you some information here real quick about just what was happening in Hong Kong during this time. Because Hong Kong in the 60s had a boom, like many other places around the world, And they had this influx of workers. They were starting to be taken more seriously as far as being a a manufacturing power in the world. But unfortunately, most of the citizens were feeling left behind because while the economy was booming, the economic divide was only widening. People were spending more time and more hours in the factory with not that much to show for it as far as payment. Typical story. But in 1966 specifically, they had raised the price of the Star Ferry by a couple of cents. And the Star Ferry was a big deal because at the time it was the only way from Hong Kong Island to the Kowloon side, which is just the other side of town, basically. Where the regular people live. Right. And so this inspired one young student to have a hunger protest which then set off a massive protest of thousands of people. And it was strictly just about this, this economic divide. And this was a big moment, especially for foreshadowing uh, what was to come, because in the next year, in 1967, there was this, these Hong Kong riots. It's kind of interesting because there doesn't seem to be a full consensus on why this happens. But, I mean, I think it was a mix of the fact that Hong Kong had a whole baby boomer generation. Most of the population was extremely young. And then again, you had all of these refugees coming in, you had this economic divide. And then meanwhile, on mainland China, you have Mao's revolution, like, you know, full throttle. And then you also have all of this information coming from the West of young people protesting things like Vietnam or, or, you know, also sort of realizing that they have some power to throw around. So there ended up being another incident that then inspired thousands of people. And what happened was there there was just like a, a protest Uh, at a plastic flower factory, which the cops came in and just put down really violently for no reason. And this inspired just everyone to lose their cool, (laughs) which is interesting because it kind of parallels what's happening right now in 2019. There's all these current protests in Hong Kong specifically. And it's funny because, you know, these protests that were happening in the 60s were sort of against this totalitarianism of the British government and the police And then now we have this sort of a similar, it's like the logical next step, because now you have people lashing out against China, who's trying to exert more power and more control over a day-to-day life in Hong Kong, which ever since the British rule elapsed after 99 years, they still were able to, to carry on some basic rights, which is the Hong Kong basic law, which ensures that they have basic democratic freedoms that China doesn't allow. 
So that's what all those protests that are happening right now are about. So it's interesting because while what was being protested in the 60s is not the same thing, you still have this basically Hong Kong was rioting for their individuality. Anyhow, these Hong Kong riots in 67 were massive, massive protests and 51 people died and over 800 people were injured. People were setting off bombs. There's like a question of whether or not mainland China was influencing this to happen. It's a really interesting point of history, which we don't have to get into <laughs> more than I already just did. Well, now I have to tie all this into these movies that we watched and I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to. Well, I think that, that what you see starting off, especially with these really traditional, very mainland China kind of inspired classic Chinese tales, now suddenly by this time and by this movie, and especially by the end of the last movie that we talk about, you get more Western influence. You're seeing more Hong Kong striking out as its own individual thing. It's not just China. Now you're getting this funky hybrid of Western movies, which they had access to through England. So you're seeing more of a mix of ideas and you're seeing more of this identity being developed. And by 1969, they actually threw this big Hong Kong festival, this cultural festival, which was a direct response to the riots of 67 because they wanted to help people think, okay, okay, you're, <laughs> you're your own thing here. Like have a sense of cultural pride. We're going to let the kids have what they want. If they want some funky colored uh, outfits, fine, take them. Just like deal with it. The, the 60s seems like the start of this distillation of what modern Hong Kong sensibility and cultural pride was. Well, yeah, I mean, it's definitely the start of a sense of Hong Kong being a truly international city and it, you know, already being pretty cosmopolitan now. It, I think Hong Kong started to see itself as the gateway to Asia, that it's sort of the way in for the West to come see Eastern culture, come to Hong Kong and let us be your port of entry. And, and I think the Shaw brothers kind of picked up on that idea too, you know, with their movies that they could appeal to a worldwide audience. And that's why they decided that, yeah, we're going to take over the world with these wuxia films. And as I mentioned earlier, it's not a very old literary genre, you know, it's from the early 20th century, but it's, you know, it's, it showed up in movies right from the silent era in Hong Kong. But the Shaw brothers said, yeah, we're going to make these hyperkinetic action movies, lots of violence, lots of blood. I mean, the, these movies actually already, it's, it's sort of surprising that even in these fairly sedate movies, there's a good amount of blood flow. But the Shaw brothers decide, yeah, we're really going to kick it up a notch. We're going to make these martial arts movies that will appeal to everybody. And so I guess I should probably give a little background into wuxia and what some of the tropes are. I mean, it's basically a fantasy version of Kung Fu or Wushu, you know, Chinese martial arts, but it's exaggerated. People have superhuman abilities. They can jump extra high or they can you know, run across water or leap great distances. They also have chi blasts where they gather up energy in their palms and then they can you know, shoot it out as a force for defense or or offense. You often see the heroes in these wuxia films toppling trees with their chi blasts just to demonstrate how powerful they are. Anything gets used as a weapon. You know, a lot of it is sword play. You know, there's a certain amount of hand-to-hand, -hand, but not a whole lot in the movies that we watched. Mostly it's using swords and spears and other weapons or 
chopsticks and, or wine jugs or whatever's around, benches. Anything is a weapon in these wuxia films, and they're tossed around in this way that actually you know, normal humans would never be able to use them. Like, for example, in the first of these wuxia movies we're going to talk about, Come Drink With Me, which was the big sensation, was the first. It wasn't the first of the, the wuxia films that the Shaw brothers made, you know, with this new push towards this style. Temple of the Red Lotus was the first one in 1965, which you know, was popular enough, but it really wasn't until Come Drink With Me that the audience really started to pay attention and, and wanted to say, yeah, this is great. We want more of this. We want more and more and more of this. Come Drink With Me was 1966 and directed by King Hu. Right. King Hu, who's one of the classiest of these uh, wuxia directors, he's often compared to like you know, Sergio Leone in a way. He combines uh, a very artful approach with ultra-violent genre movies. Come Drink With Me is, I'm not sure necessarily him at his prime. I think his three-hour touch of zen in the, the early 70s is probably his masterpiece, his Once Upon a Time in the West. Come Drink With Me, you know, was popular, but it was one of his early ones, and he didn't have all his trademarks in place yet. He also left for Taiwan pretty quickly after Come Drink With Me, uh, so he was making movies there instead of for the Shaw Brothers, so his classic Dragon Inn was made in Taiwan and not in Hong Kong. So this movie, its main hero is Golden Swallow, who is sort of a detective bodyguard who has been sent out to investigate the kidnapping of the ruler's son by bandits who are holding him hostage until the ruler releases the leader of these bandits. So pretty standard action revenge movie territory. There's nothing too special about the story itself, but it turns out that the son of the king is... Golden Swallow's brother, and it actually turns out that Golden Swallow is a woman, uh, Cheng Pepe, who was one of the great female martial arts stars of, of Hong Kong at the time, and this was the movie that made her a star. She's still making movies. She was in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. She's Jade Fox in that. So a lot of the really impressive martial arts stuff, a, a female is at the center of it here, so that's fun to see. And I think in Chinese theater and literature and folk tales like there's a long tradition of female warriors you know, unlike japan where it wasn't until very late that you started to see female sword fighters in the samurai movies uh, females are right there in the battles you know right from the beginning in chinese film uh, you mentioned mulan earlier how ivy ling po played her and i think this historical figure of mulan was sort of an inspiration and captured a lot of uh, chinese people's imagination so that's why there is this tradition of the female warrior so in the first third of come drink with me you, you get your first real great wuxia action set piece where it always seems to happen in a restaurant and our hero is surrounded by dozens of the enemy and, and there's sort of overtures to a battle. The villains always sort of taunt the hero and try and get the hero to do whatever it is they ask. In this case, they want Golden Swallow to just go back to the king and say, no, we won't negotiate. Just give us our leader back and you can have your son. And she responds to their shows of force by demonstrating her wuxia abilities. So she'll like... Um, 
you know, a lot of stuff that doesn't even make sense on a narrative level. Like one of the villains throws a handful of coins up in the air and she throws a few chopsticks up into the ceiling and manages to go through the center of all of these coins and then they drop down from off the chopsticks into her hand. You know, a lot of really impossible but fun to watch bits of almost supernatural martial arts ability on display here. And then this drunken beggar shows up and seems to have some inside information for Golden Swallow about where they're holding her brother. And he's sort of this goofball, drunken guy who sings songs with a bunch of child beggars for money. It becomes clear that he's not the bum that he appears to be when uh, he sort of clues her in that the villains are going to sneak into her room and do her in. And he reveals to her through song that they're holding her brother at a temple, so she tries to sneak in there. And a lot of these things are just excuses for more martial arts action set pieces. So then we have a battle in a temple where the main flunky, the jade-faced tiger, has this weapon where he can shoot poison darts out of his fans so she gets hit with one of those poison darts and runs off into the forest and is rescued by drunken cat this beggar guy and it turns out that he's a kung fu master himself so there's this whole other storyline going on between drunken cat and the abbot lao kung played again by young chi ching this guy who shows up in all of these movies and so alongside this other storyline with golden swallow and her brother is this other story of this battle between these two brothers of this kung fu school and the abbot seems to be behind a lot of the villainy that's going on in this area. This is another case where these movies are, you know, you try and break down the plot and it's, you know, there's not much to it and it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. It's really just an excuse for show-offy martial arts, which is really fun to watch. I don't know, what, what did you think of Come Drink With Me? I kind of didn't like this movie (laughs) I don't know here's the thing okay this movie is like this is like the lodestar of action movies it seems to me because there are so many beats in this movie that feel so modern the pacing and the way that everything will lead up to a stare down with the music cues all of that it just is fully modern and exactly what action movies are like and are still like to this day with better special effects or or maybe less edits and more actual fighting and stuff like that but the problem is that this is also the lodestar of why i don't like action movies (laughs) it's shot really well it's it's beautiful looking actually it was the best looking of all of the movies that we saw with very modern and well thought out camera angles and well framed all of this sort of stuff so it's a great looking movie it was also nice to get out of the studio for a change those movies were feeling a bit studio bound to me and you still get a lot of this shot in studio but you also get some nice outdoor photography too which is nice totally and this movie is also like so it's so brutal i mean like there's all these hands flying off and sprays of blood and that young monk that gets killed in front of his master for no reason other than to show you how evil the evil guys are but the problem for me is that like there's no stakes at all in this movie you know yeah that just it doesn't matter the battles are really cool and the filmmaking is super engaging but the characters are super dry and the story just sucks <laughs> It's a really lame story. You don't get enough of a sense of anybody. I really liked Golden Swallow. She seemed really cool and interesting and had a personality. But you don't even get her for most of this movie. Instead, you just see the drunken guy who's super boring and lame. 
He's like a Mary Sue. You know, oh, suddenly this this guy is a loser, but now he can do everything and he does it better than everyone and no one can beat him. And every time you think it's just lame, it's just boring. And why is he so mysterious about everything, too? Like, why doesn't he just come out and give her the information she needs or just say, oh, you know, these guys are going to kill you? Like, what? Right. I don't <laughs> get just... it. It just didn't make any sense. And it's mm. like all this talent that's being wasted on this wafer thin substance which is such a bummer. It's just so empty. And it's exactly what I hate about modern action flicks. Well, at the same time, this is like the quintessence of, of modern <laughs> action flicks. But so I don't know, this just wasn't really for me, even though at the same time, I can really appreciate that this is important and interesting. And again, like so much feels exactly like this movie. This it, And it feels very modern to its credit. It still feels like if this came out, honestly, today i wouldn't totally question it there's so much like the music stings and the stare downs and you know everything that everyone loves to give sergio leone credit for you can point to this just as easily and say you know this actually even refined it to a point that we're still seeing it being played out in these same exact beats i mean i think that's it's a strategy that the shaw brothers took and it's a strategy that hollywood has always used is show the money on the screen, give the audience lots of action, make the story really simple that anybody anywhere, whether they speak English or you know, you know whether they have a, a poorly dubbed or translated version that they're watching, they can follow the story or at least follow the story enough that they can understand why these characters are having showdowns. And it's really just a like, bare bones skeleton to hang these action scenes off of. And it's not what I enjoy watching in movies. You know, I like my movies to be about something, but it's definitely a, a strategy for capturing a mass audience. So I think that's what we're seeing here. You know, there's also like the parts of this reminded me of Star Wars <laughs> when he has that like Yoda training in the swamp. Yeah. That the drunk guy does. And, and he's like grabbing a rock by his fingers. I, like that was stuff that was fun. Like I like that stuff. And I wanted more of those moments and just any character development, you know, and, and anything that was character development and not only through just physical action you know again like it comes back to the dance thing for me like i you know the way that this person moves with their sword isn't cluing me into anything because i'm too dumb to know what that is meant to mean so you know besides being like oh cool you know i can use a sword i'm not like oh yes the skill i can clearly see that this person is clearly more skilled than everyone else like i don't know like that doesn't like give me anything to work on so, you know, like I'm, I'm like looking more for the verbal cues or the thing about, okay, this guy can lift a rock with his finger. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> it's also, it was very clearly an effect, but, but I enjoyed that because like there was something I could grab onto there, but otherwise, I don't know. The one thing that complicates this movie and, you know, other movies in this genre uh, that I found that I kind of like is that it's not always at least not always immediately that clear cut who the hero and who the villain is like when the bandits stop the coach with the ruler's son in it and uh, say oh you must release our leader i'm like are these the good guys trying to get a good leader back from a bad government or and it's it's really kind of unclear and there's always a lot of cruelty on both sides Eventually things iron out and the villains become really evil, like they just do these horrible things that are unforgivable, whereas the heroes are, you know, a little bit, you know, won't shoot a child monk in the eye with a dart and then kill him instead of giving him an antidote. Like the lines between good and evil are 
a little bit unclear, especially as we progress a bit with, with the movies that we watch. It, I, I think that's one thing that I kind of enjoyed. I know the next movie, One-Armed Swordsman from 1967, one of your big problems with that movie is there's nobody to like in that thing. not get yourself invested in this movie at all because you hated all the characters and I think that's part of what I find interesting about these movies is that the heroes and villains are they're all kind of the same it's just you know degrees of badness well at least for come drink with me the villains have some good lines (laughs) (laughs) you know and and I like that evil guy in all white you can imagine what you think this guy's like and then when he's saying lines like why worship that fake God when you can worship a living God like me or whatever? What, didn't he say that? <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Jade-faced tiger. He was pretty fun. He was a cool guy. I liked him. He was just a typical villain. One-armed swordsman. I don't know. Directed by Chang Che, who was the Shaw Brothers' powerhouse director. I mean, he was super prolific. Directed hundreds of movies for the Shaw Brothers. One-armed swordsman was a, a huge hit. First movie to make over a million dollars, you know, locally in Hong Kong. So they referred to Chang Che as their million dollar director. And they just throw as many projects as they could his way because he could make film after film after film with these very masculine storylines of men trying to prove themselves, you know, prove their honor and fight for their brothers. And a lot of the more popular 70s Shaw Brothers movies were directed by Chang Che and like the Five Venoms. And, and Chang Che actually directed the sequel to Come Drink With Me called Golden Swallow, which I haven't seen, but it's more focused on Golden Swallow, I would hope. So maybe maybe that's the Chang Pei Pei movie you need to see. But this One-Armed Swordsman made a star out of Jimmy Wang, who is the lowly son of a servant of a Kung Fu master who, you know, when Fang Kung was a child, gave up his life to save his master from bandits. So the master, or Shifu, agreed to raise Fang Kang as his own child and, and teach him the ways of the Qi method, the, the Qi style of swordsmanship. And he kind of looks like Shia LaBeouf. You think Jimmy Wang looks like Shia LaBeouf? Yeah. Let's see it. I was too blinded by the light shining off his hairless chest for the entire movie that... <laughs> I didn't see anything else. Damn. <laughs> but, yeah, of course, he's raised alongside the master's own daughter, Pei, who is secretly slash not so secretly in love with Fang Gang. And two of the more troublesome brothers of the order, not actual brothers, but brothers in Kung Fu, they all treat Fang Gang as uh, less than like the servant son that he is and not the like adopted son of their master that they should treat him as, you know, as the equal that he really should be. And I'd say he's pretty humble about it. He's sort of accepted his place as less than the rest of them, but he also is not too happy about it, thinks his brothers are real dicks. And Pei, you know, there's never really any sign that he likes her back. But what I thought was most interesting about this movie is that it's actually Pei, the daughter of his master who's in love with him, who's the one who ends up cutting his 
arm off, turning him into the one-armed swordsman. So that was pretty unexpected. I saw a real castration theme there. <laughs> you know, Fang Gong is tired of being treated the way he's treated by his brothers and sister and runs off and they chase after him and Pei wants to challenge him to a sword fight to prove that she's as good as he is and he refuses and out of anger she slices his arm off. She has a temper tantrum. She challenges him to a fight and he's like, I won't fight you with the knife because that's too intense. And they, they do hand-to-hand combat and she, of course, gets bowled over immediately and then she gets <laughs> frustrated so she cuts his arm off. <laughs> as women do. But then, of course, she's kidnapped by the villains later in the movie, and he doesn't resent her so much for chopping off his arm that he doesn't go and rescue her. I think he resents her a lot. I think that but what he has more loyalty to her father. That's what he tells her. He says that he rescued her not for her, not because he loved her or ever loved her, but because he owes it to her father who raised him as his own. But there's also this aspect like... Fang Gong always has this attitude like he deserves to be shit on the way that he is, the way that people shit on him all the time. Like he just has accepted that he has this coming to him. He was born a servant's son and that's how he should be treated and knows that that's not the vision for his upbringing that his Shifu has for him. But he's such a damn saint about it. And this is what I hated about this movie. It just bored me to tears. Number one... This sure as heck showed me about bitching about how there's not enough character work in these movies because this thing is just all expository dialogue. There's like a solid hour of just useless like, well, what shall we do when we walk outside? Well, when we walk outside, we will go to the outside where the outdoors are. You know, it's just like, oh, my God, like I I got it. Don't worry. It's not that complex. It's, in, in fact, even more simple than all of the other things that we've even watched. Yeah. Although the outdoors isn't even the outdoors like it wasn't Come Drink With Me. Yeah, we're back in the studio. And also, like, the main character, he's a Mary Sue, again, which, if anyone (laughs) doesn't know this term, this is like a fan fiction term, basically, but it's that, you know, this character who's just so perfect that the whole world is warped around, you know, it has to complement this person existing. So everything that he does, you know, everything he is is a saint. Everything he does, he never does anything out of line. And yes, he is bullied and he always takes the high road. He never has a moment of anger. And then when he does something that's kind of messed up, it's always because they had it coming to them and they did something mean to him. So like there's a scene where he's being bullied by these guards because he's a cripple quote. And so then when eventually after they've bullied him and roughed him up and then like kidnapped several people He comes in there and says, well, you mocked me for being a cripple. So now you have the opportunity to see how it feels. And he cuts their hands off. So that was kind of cool. But the other problem with this movie is that no one has any shred of logic, except for this main character, because he's perfect and everything he does is perfect. But like the main thing is these like bad guys have this weird sword contraption that has like it sort of forks at the end into two pieces and then they can press a button and it'll snap closed. So when you're fighting, it locks your sword. And then while you're so busy trying to get your sword out of this contraption, they use their other hand to just shank you, (laughs) like, right in the stomach. So that's how they kill everyone. Yeah, and the overarching story in this movie is the story you see in, like, hundreds of these martial arts movies where it's just two competing schools of kung fu that are sort of warring against each other. There's the good school, uh, which is, you know, Shifu Chi, even though, like, it's filled with a bunch of jerks, too. You know, everybody in all these schools, on, you know, on every side, they're all a bunch of jerks, but 
Jimmy Wang's uh, school is, is slightly better because the master is kind of a nice guy. The other school that they're against, you know, want to prove that they're better, and they, so they create this weapon that can defeat the traditional sword of the Qi school. And, you know, the way these Qi students have been taught, they don't know how to fight any other way than the way that Qi has taught them. So brother after brother after brother after brother is just killed by the other school because they just can't figure out any way to get around this very simple tool that they're using to defeat their swordplay style. And they all know it. They've had multiple interactions with this thing. And then even in the end, the final showdown, which I will admit was fun. I I enjoyed the final showdown. This was one of the few... (laughs) See... Because there was so much lame dialogue and moments of nothing happening that when they were fighting, now finally I appreciated it because something was happening. It was moving the story along. But in the end, like, they're all standing around. They're about to show down. And these two students say, we're going to fight first, so we'll show you the contraption so that you can then beat it. Even though everyone knows that this contraption exists. And then you look at the dang thing and you can tell (laughs) what it's going to do. It's not, like, that mysterious. It's like a fork sword, basically. These two guys go out there and then they end up getting just murdered in front of everybody. And they're like, oh, now, you know, and then they die. And everyone's like, oh, no, what do we do? You just (laughs) saw what to do. Like, you just saw the contraption. And then even better is that one of the students says in this moment of nothing happening, no tension whatsoever. They're all just standing there like, well, I have a good sword. And everyone's like, oh, no, like, that's it. That's all that's happening. This other student, this third student jumps out and says, I'd rather die by my own hand than by your sword. And then just kills himself like in front of everybody, just straight up suicide. And right, of course, after that happens and everyone's even the bad guy is like, what the heck? Like he, he's like, <laughs> oh, shoot. Yeah. Like a lot of shrugging all around. <laughs> everyone's confused. And then, of course, the main character jumps over the wall right at that moment. And then the tides have turned immediately. And now they can battle. So it's like this poor dude just like jumped the gun so much within five seconds of the main character coming and saving everybody. But you like this movie a lot. You gave this a way better score than I did. I thought it was fun. Yeah, I had a good time. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's formula, but it was a fun formula. I love stuff like, okay, so he falls into the boat of this woman, you know, after his arm, his right arm has been cut off and she like boats him back to her hut and, you know, saves his life. And she just so happens to have... She's an orphan because her father was the master at another school, and she has this manual of martial arts that the enemy was trying to get, and her father wanted to burn it before the enemy could get it. So the whole manual burned, all except for the last chapter about auxiliary left-handed sword play stuff. So it just so happens that Fang Gang only has a left hand, and he happens to have a shorter sword because his father's sword that he carries around is a broken sword. And he needs a shorter sword for this method. And also so that he is, doesn't get trapped by the enemy's sword grabber thingy. And, you know, it's just so much ridiculousness. And I don't know. I'm able to turn off my mind and just kind of enjoy these things. It just felt so serious. Like, I think that's maybe part of it, too, is that there's a degree of, like, I'm not getting the right cues. I don't know. Like, I can watch all these lame westerns all the time. And, like, I kind of enjoy those. And they're really the same kind of thing. So I don't know what I'm missing. I just like villains being really villainous. And and I really liked Pei. I thought the actress who alternately goes by Angela Pan or Violet Pan, it was fun Like because she's an awful person, but she's also kind of the heroine. Like I mean, in the end, it's the one-armed swordsman's savior, Xiao Man. 
who he ends up falling in love with and gives up a life of swordplay for her eventually. Like, there's a lot of back and forth. Do I save my master? Do I, no, I give up kung fu. No, I'm, I'm back. I'm, uh, you know, in and out and in and out. And just all this back and forth, it gets a little tedious. But Pei is um, kind of a fun, awful character. Well, I liked her because she was, yeah, as you say, a total jerk. And I love that halfway through the movie, she's like, oh, you saved me because you love me. And it's like, girl, you cut his arm off. Like, what? Like, why, why do you think that he's in love with you? Like, you literally ruined his life. Yeah. And she has a really hard time accepting that that's not the case, too. Even by the end, she feels like, oh, but he always loved me. And it's like, girl, you are delusional. Yeah, that stuff is good. I can't believe that didn't suck you in at all. I think it was just the pacing. I just kept, I don't know, it could also have just been, you know, sometimes you're not in the mood, quite frankly, to, to watch certain things. And that could have been part of it. Because at the beginning, I straight up missed when she cuts his arm off. <laughs> because I was just spacing out. I, it, was just, it was such a long lead up. I just was just waiting for something to happen. And then when it happened, I totally missed it. I had to rewind it. And I was like, oh, shit, this is actually kind of intense. <laughs> I also love how you don't see the ultimate villain, like the real bad guy responsible for everything, long-armed devil. You always see him from the back with his, like, five spears that he carries on his back. And when you finally see his face, it's Yang Chi Ching again. You know? Right. <laughs> and, uh, but he's got a big facial scar. So I'm not sure if the surprise was that you're finding out for the first time that this scar is why he's got this big grudge against Shifu Chi, or if it's just that... Yang Chi Ching is such a recognizable star that they thought it'd be fun to have him in the whole movie and not revealed until the final scene. But on the other hand, I really liked the next movie, which was The Fastest Sword from 1968. <laughs> Directed and written by Pan Lei. I think it was unusual for there to be this kind of authorship in these Shaw productions, but this guy both wrote and directed this film, so it was a it was a passion project. And it actually most resembles an American Western of any of these Hong Kong movies we watched. You know, sort of the typical story of this guy, he's the fastest sword in the country, and so you know, everybody who wants to challenge him for that title approaches him. And he is very quickly defeated by him. So he just ends up murdering one person after another after another, not out of cruelty, but just because they keep challenging him to duels and he has to respond. You know, and he's got enough pride. He loves being the fastest sword. So, of course, he's not going to do anything to jeopardize his title. But after a particularly uh, brutal series of murders where just one guy after another challenges him to the title, there's a, an 80-year-old monk who witnesses this whole thing and says, hey, you know, if I can beat you with my long tobacco pipe here, you have to do whatever I say for three years. And so Ting Meng Hao, played by Lu Ping, says, yeah, whatever, old man, okay. No way you're going to defeat me with that pipe. And, of course, the 80-year-old Kung Fu master defeats him. And so Ting Meng Hao goes back to this monk's temple and meditates for six months and decides, this is boring. Is there anything else we can do? And the monk asks him to 
transcribe all of these scriptures and Ting Meng Hao doesn't like that any better. So uh, eventually the monk settles on uh, having him turn this gigantic boulder into a sculpture. And first he sculpts a, a giant Buddha and then a you know smaller Siddhartha sculpture and then finally a, a very small jade sculpture and realizes the importance of being an expert in fine craftsmanship and in, in, in detail. You have to mention that in between all of these carvings, six months takes <laughs> place. Strange. This crazy old guy who has like hair growing out of his eyeballs practically. <laughs> this guy is the furriest man I've ever seen in my life. Tells him, you know, you're my slave for three years. And it goes back. It goes by like this because basically everything he does, he's like, all right, I'll see you in six months. Peace. <laughs> like just disappears. It ends up being pretty amusing because every time Ding Men Hao carves something, six months pass, the guy wanders back in. Nah, I don't like it. Do something else. I'll be back in six months. And by the end of this, after three times, after, you know, years pass, he comes back in and says, yeah, that's what I wanted. And Ding Ming Hao is like, why didn't you tell me this from day one? Really, this is all that separates this movie from like you know, the gunfighter with Gregory Pack, you know, this fastest gun in the West who just wants to get out of the game is, is that, uh, Ting Ming Hao has this uh, three-year experience with a monk that makes him realize that he needs to get out of the game. But the trouble is he can't because whether he wants it or not, he continues to have challengers who know his reputation and want to challenge him to a duel. And he just ends up having to kill them. So yeah, after he leaves the monk, he tries to still practice his swordsmanship in one of these kung fu schools, but they kick him out because the master there says, uh, you know, you're killing too many people. We don't want you around here anymore. So Ting Ming Hao decides that he uh, just wants to hide in a small town and use a different name and just become a stone sculptor. And that's what he tries to do. But even then, his challengers keep seeking him out and they won't let him be. And there's, uh, you know, one of these bland like uh you know bandits kidnap the daughter of the king and ting ming hao has to agree to accept the challenge to a duel by the fastest sword in the north in order to get the information to get the lady back and it actually plays a little bit better in this movie by the time you get to the final duel between these two fastest swords in the world it seems really motivated like you're kind of invested in both of their reasons for being there and how ting Meng how doesn't want to be there but has to be and the fastest sword in the north just can't accept that there may possibly be somebody who's faster than him so refuses to back down refuses to not duel this guy and yeah so it comes down to this actually pretty other than a slow motion sequence in this final showdown battle where they just walk really slowly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the slow motion was used just so you can see that their technique is real. There's no trickery here. It's not actual slow motion. <laughs> like, they're just very slowly doing a routine. No, 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 no. But it doesn't work. Either way, it just looks kind of silly when they're dueling in slow motion. But when they go back to fast motion and, and Ting Meng Hao realizes that he has to use the lessons of the monk to go smaller, keep going smaller, keep going smaller to defeat this guy, it's pretty satisfying. And I don't know, I, I, is it because the story was a little more Western that it, it sucked us in a little bit? Because we both like this one more than the other wuxia films that we watched. What I really liked about this is that you actually care about a character for once. <laughs> like, I really liked Ding Ming Hao. 
And I actually, it was interesting because I really didn't like the first 20 minutes of this when it starts off with him as a character who all he wants is just to fight and kill people. And it's just your same old, same old for the type of dude that you end up watching in these films. And then you get this sort of like tricky old man who comes in, you know, also like a total cliche of the man on the mountain that that is so wise beyond his many, many years and teaching your main character something. And ah, now he understands what introspection is, you know, total cliche. Though I, I did somewhere in between the stone carving sequence that lasts for two years, I started to really get into it. But it was only after all of this happens that finally you get this character who he still, after this experience, he just sort of like shrugs and goes off back to becoming this fastest swordsman of the South. But then suddenly he has this reluctance. You know, now suddenly he's realizing, oh my God, I'm just killing everybody. It's fascinating to see that there's this line between, and it's like the subtle horror too of realizing suddenly that you're a serial killer. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's kind of the line between the war hero and a serial killer. Like, <laughs> It's like a weird thing to navigate because he's not doing, he's not going out to kill these guys. All of these guys are coming to him. They're challenging him and they will not take no for an answer. So what is he left to do? They're, they're coming at him with swords and he has to kill them. Otherwise they're going to kill him because that's the whole point. So he's just caught in this conundrum that to me was really interesting And then the acting in this was really great. There's a lot of focus on just emotional reactions, on facial expressions, on just really feeling the weight of all of these things. And then so then when they start to fight, you're actually tied into, okay, cool. I I don't want to see Ting Ming Hao die, but I also don't want to see him kill another guy either because you feel for him because you know it's going to hurt him. Mm -hmm. And then the fastest sword of the North was great too. The actor is Ming Hao. And he just had personality. He just has just he had a character to him, even though at the end of the day, I think on the script, it really was mostly just that this is another guy who comes to challenge him over and over and over. But he manages to at least trick him into working with him and then realizing, well, I'll help you out with this for this thing that you really care about. But then afterwards, we have to duel. So he gets what he wants in the end there was way much more heart and soul in this thing than than any of the other movies that we watched. Yeah. I mean, the story's not complicated and it's fairly obvious. I mean, you've seen it before, but it's, it actually attempts to give you some fleshed out characters. And I think Lu Ping does a great job as Ting Meng Hao. And I think it's really as simple as that. If I can get invested in the stories and the characters of these movies, it makes a huge difference. Plus all the women in this. Now you start to really see that we're in 1968. All the women in this look so 60s. They have the big cat eye makeup. And the northern sword to me looked kind of... He had like Vulcan eyebrows. (laughs) It's all Star Trek for you, isn't it? Yep. Everything comes back to Star Trek. Yep. It's a a positive. It's a good thing. Yeah, so we, we used these three movies to represent what was happening with the Wuxia film in the 60s with the Shaw brothers was trying to bring to a now international audience. It hadn't quite reached the West yet. It hadn't taken off in Europe and America yet. It was going to happen in the 70s. But, you know, you, you see a lot of the same tropes in all these movies, and it's fun. They're all brutal. There's a whole lot of bloodshed in all of them. You know, by the end, 
you know that every piece of white material that anyone is wearing is going to be red because of the blood that's been sprayed on it. And it definitely rivals the spaghetti westerns that we've covered so far for violence. It's way more intense than these. Yeah, something about hand-to-hand violence as opposed to gun violence. It's, you know, you parts of the body get sliced off and there's more spraying of blood. The camera focuses on it too, though. You know what I mean? Like the camera's like up in it. If someone gets sliced and they, they slice their guts, then you the camera like zooms right in on that slice. It's, it's kind of intense. Yeah, but that's what the audiences love, or at least that's what the Shaw brothers counted on. And they were right. I mean, other than Hollywood, definitely in the 60s, in the 70s anyway, they were the closest thing to a Hollywood studio producing populist entertainment for a worldwide audience with a series of kung fu films. But we wanted to, just as a sample of some of the stuff that the Shaw brothers were doing that were not in this particular genre that uh, that made them famous and made them all this money, it shows Temptress of a Thousand Faces from 1969. <laughs> bootleg bond episodes i think i had this on the list for one of our bootleg bond episodes actually so i was pretty thrilled to watch this this was directed by chang hua jong a korean and it's essentially a ripoff of phantomas from 1964 with jean marais it's the same movie which is a remake of the silent serial phantomas it was a famous french fictional character the master thief who can fool anybody this is a variation on that. I also wanted to mention that Jiang Zhanghua, the director of this movie, who I think actually uses a Chinese name for his Shaw Brothers movies, but I, I didn't write down what that is. But he also directed The Five Fingers of Death, which was the first of these big Chopsaki movies to, to get shown in America. Warner Brothers picked it up and distributed it, and it was a huge hit, and I think it was sort of building off some of the interest in the genre that the show Kung Fu had sort of started up a bit, which I used to love as a kid. But yeah, in in 1972, this guy directed, it's actually King Boxer is the real name, but it was retitled Five Fingers of Death for an American audience, and it was huge, and it just started the whole Kung Fu craze in America. But yeah, back to this movie. Well, in Temptress of a Thousand Faces, Hong Kong is being terrorized by the Temptress, who is this jewel thief (laughs) who takes people's faces and and wears them. (laughs) (laughs) It starts out with the very fancy lady pulling up in a Rolls Royce and buying a bunch of jewelry, very expensive stuff without even asking the price and then just signing a check, having her, her servant sign the check for her and then leaving and then the check... The ink disappears and it says Temptress of a Thousand Faces and then it explodes. (laughs) (laughs) Like a Mission Impossible assignment. So yeah, so you know what you're working with already right there. But um, the plot is really weird. And and honestly, like in some ways, the plot's not nearly as interesting as the details of this. Very secondary. And as much as I love so many moments in this movie, the fact that the plot was just 
completely unimportant to the, the makers of this film made it a sort of long 74 minutes for me. It is a little long, quite frankly. But basically, you have a, a police officer who is played by Tina Chin Fei, who is out there to get the temptress before she strikes again. And she gets kidnapped a bunch of times by the temptress, who, by the way, lives in a cave, like a Bond villain cave surrounded by all of these scantily clad women who are ready to attack or give her a massage at a moment's notice. And she steals the face of this police officer. And then as she puts her in a cell, she goes off and bangs her boyfriend (laughs) and confuses everybody and then does a bunch of mischief as the police officer so that when she gets out of the cell, now she's in jail and the temptress is free and roaming. So it's another sort of double identity kind of thing. What else happens? There's something about a journalist, but I almost have lost it. I like I watched it, honestly, the other day, and, and I've already lost what the details of this movie were. But Yeah, M- Molly's the journalist who's supposed to get the scoop on the temptress of a thousand faces, and Ji Ying's boyfriend is a photographer, so Molly uses him she dresses up as a temptress and creates a fake photo of the temptress that she can run in the paper and, and then decides that she wants Ji Ying's boyfriend and is constantly going over to his apartment, uh, consoling him when Ji Ying has been uh, arrested for being the temptress of a thousand faces. Unjustly. You know, she will spill things on her clothing so she can take it off and will, you know, fall into the tub and pull Ji Ying's boyfriend in. And, as uh, most women do. Yeah. <laughs> Was the journalist the temptress? Yeah. Or is it a... Yeah, well, you sort of... She was. <laughs> yeah, Molly Molly was the temptress in the end. And you sort of suspect it. It's like, why does the temptress want to bang this dude as much as the journalist did? And, and you realize, oh, okay, I, I think I know what's going on here. <laughs> <laughs> but it, none of it really matters. It's all just a series of setups for some comic violence. There's actually some really slapstick stuff in here that I thought was kind of funny. There's one incompetent cop who's so obsessed with women that it keeps getting him into trouble. He like keeps letting the temptress get away because he can't stop looking at pretty ladies' legs. And I mean, some of the slapstick reminded me of the Pink Panther movies, like when uh, Yuck Dot, is that Ji Ying's boyfriend? He's so unmemorable, which is kind of a cool thing about this movie because the, the men in this movie are just incompetent or useless and... But he does one thing. Ji Ying convinces him that she's not actually the temptress. And so he, while she's arrested, he goes and does a robbery and leaves a temptress of a thousand faces card so that the police inspector, again, played by uh, our friend Yang Qiqing, says, oh, well, I guess Ji Ying can't be the temptress because she's still pulling off crime. So, uh, but there's actually a pretty funny, like, Pink Panther-esque series of pratfalls when Yuk Dad is dressed as a woman trying to convince people that they've been robbed by the temptress of a thousand faces and you know a lot of people falling out of windows and knocking over big stacks of files and you know the kind of easy yucks but I laughed I was impressed I mean number one as you kind of touched upon the main character and the main villain are both women which is kind of cool and all the men are super incompetent it was almost like a female bond kind of situation, even though there's not, I hesitate to call it bond, but bond's the closest thing just because of this crazy 
pulling rubber faces off in that lair. There's no way that like that Bond's the only thing that you that comes to mind. But there's not really much spy things that happen here. But there's definitely like glass cages people are tied into where lights flash and they vibrate in the cage Spin kind of stuff. You know, there's one bomb that gets thrown at someone who everyone's like, we'll never get it you know off and then uh, you see literally like a kitchen timer going down <laughs> and there's about five ten seconds left on the kitchen timer until a cop finally is like i'll just go over here and press the stop button you know? <laughs> <laughs> but it's also i mean i think it is supposed to be a comical moment and a lot of things in this movie don't make any sense like the shootout at the end in the villain's lair you know, g ying and her boyfriend go in and just shoot 150 of the the temptresses hench people without reloading until finally they've run out of bullets and it's uh, everything's just heightened in such a way that you know it's not trying to fool you it's it's doing it for comic effect i think oh for sure there's that scene where chi ying's boyfriend does like the kiss test to see whether or not it's the real chi ying because <laughs> and he says I, i'll know by her kiss and so they make out a little bit. He goes, yeah, yeah, this is the real one. And then like in the next scene, the temptress comes over with <laughs> Chi Ying's face and starts to make out with him and then has sex with him. And he doesn't notice <laughs> whatsoever until the real one comes in through the window and is like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> but that sets up my absolute favorite gag in the movie where the temptress and Ji Ying are fighting. You know, they look identical. Just have this like hand-to-hand battle in uh, Ji Ying's apartment and Yuck Dot wants to help, but he doesn't know which is which. So in the middle of them, like, in, in this hand-to-hand combat, he's trying to, like, kiss each one to figure out which is the real <laughs> Ji Ying, and it's, it's pretty funny. It definitely, it was silly and weird enough that this was 100% up my alley. I also, I really liked, honestly, like, this, like, Temptress is, is like a low-key feminist communist icon, like, straight up. There's a great speech she has where she says the reason why she does this and she talks about, well, there's so many rich people and all they do is, is steal and lie and rob, but they get through all the legal loopholes so they don't go to jail. And meanwhile, I just do a good, honest day of stealing and I should be allowed to do this. This is completely, I'm straightforward about it. And you're like, yeah, you know what? You're right. Screw it. Like, go for it, girl. Like, take whatever you want. And then she also talks about how she grew up poor and she was like the object of desire for many men. And so now that she's older, she wants revenge. And you're also like, fuck yeah. <laughs> Do yeah. it. But of course, I'm not sure I can untangle the politics exactly. But in a Hong Kong movie, it kind of makes sense for the villain to be a communist, right? Because this is the capitalist version of China when you're in Hong Kong, right? I mean, I wouldn't say, I don't think this has a political message really at all. And it certainly isn't feminist, even though, I, I mean, you could sort of call that character specifically feminist, but the rest of it is a lot of women in their underwear wrestling. So this has almost an exploitation vibe. There are way too many up-the-skirt shots in this movie for it to be a feminist film. Uh, yeah, big time. <laughs> but But then at the same time, you're right. I mean, this is easily the most Western culture-influenced film. And again, this is in 1969, which is when they had settled to some degree, at least the violence had stopped with riots and the government's realizing, like, we got to appease people a bit. And so this whole movie almost felt like a commercial for, like, the wonders of modern Western culture, you know? Like, they have full-on mod fashion. Everyone's driving Volkswagen Beetles and those uh, Volkswagen vans. 
Mm-hmm. There's all this mid-century modern interior design and architecture being highlighted. There's all the steamy sex scenes, which are a little intense, even for 69. Like, I was impressed, actually. I didn't look into the censorship rules in Hong Kong, but it, it definitely got away with a lot more sex-wise than anything we had seen up to this point. Yeah, and it was like basically instead of like a cheesy dance number that you would typically find in a a movie like this if it had come out in Britain or America, they just had martial arts and explosions. (laughs) (laughs) And you get the females again who are the experts in martial arts and seem to get the upper hand on any male when it comes to -to hand-to-hand combat. Yeah, this was was a pretty (laughs) solidly weird and fun and silly movie. What did you think about that ending where the incompetent cop grabs one of the temptress's harem girls and runs off with her and and the entire cast laughs and walks off? (laughs) That's how how every single movie should end, actually. (laughs) I thought it was hilarious, but it made me a little uncomfortable. (laughs) It's super uncomfortable, but it's just the perfect ending for any movie like this. I think of like Harvey Birdman where they do the endings where everyone like someone like dies and everyone's like, ah, ha, ha, and starts clapping. You know, it's like (laughs) the same shit. It was like, ah, cool. Like, yes, carry her off into the sunset as she kicks and screams. Ah, wonderful. You know, hilarious. Yeah. So that's the Shaw Brothers in the 60s, or at least the best that I could do to give a nice overview of what they were doing in the 60s. It was definitely the 70s before they got the Western audience that they were looking for. You get some of the kung fu flavor already in some of the 60s movies we've watched, like the Matt Helm, the Wrecking Crew movie has got a a bit in there. Nancy Kwan and Sharon Tate have a kung fu battle in that, and that was 69. Which was trained by Bruce Lee. Yeah, exactly. So it's already starting to infiltrate the zeitgeist in the late 60s, and then it's pretty much entirely due to the Shaw brothers and their marketing and their action formula. I mean, I learned a lot. This, <laughs> As much as, uh, you know, I, I have this sort of mixed emotions about a lot of these movies, I, this was definitely interesting. And I wonder now if even having the basis of this viewing experience, even this just taste of six different movies maybe will help me to kind of realize what I'm looking at, setting down like just the 101 of what the tropes are and what to expect to get my bearings Who knows? Maybe in a year's time, I'll be like full-on Carlo. (laughs) My friend Carlo on back row, all he watches is Hong Kong movies, and he just loves it. He's totally obsessed, which is great. And I love reading about it whenever he writes little reviews for them because they always sound nutty and weird and interesting. And then I turn them on, and I just, like, I can't focus. (laughs) I get ADD, but... Well, he's not a big fan of these 60s movies either because they aren't as crazy and weird as the later movies in the cycle got to be especially in the 80s with you know a lot of monsters and vampires and just insane like people blowing up from chi blasts and that sort of thing well i mean this certainly isn't going to be the last shaw brothers that you're going to hear even on cinema 60 so there's plenty more that we're going to end up doing i hope so now that i know something about this stuff in previous episodes, I've talked about how I have a fondness for American schlock you know, or, you know, American mass market populist entertainment because I have a sense of American culture and understand how it all kind of fits together. But, you know, mass entertainment 
stuff from other countries is uh, kind of a mystery and it's sort of an overwhelming process trying to understand the culture of Hong Kong to really be able to interpret uh, what appealed to a Hong Kong audience and where a lot of this stuff was coming from. I mean, art movies, which is where we tend to focus with this show, you know, it's usually done by individual filmmakers who have, you know, more universal message or more personal messages to their films. So you don't necessarily need the kind of cultural context for those films that you do with movies like this. Luckily, the Shaws were aiming for an international audience, so it's, you know, easier to connect with these movies maybe than if they were purely made for, you know, just a Hong Kong audience. But... I know this has given me enough of a start to want to do further research, and hopefully we've managed to make it interesting enough for others out there who may not know much about this stuff to want to tackle some of it. This episode has to end with us saying, and this has been another Bardoscope production. I think it just did. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.